Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is February 20th, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is an honor to be joined in dialogue by participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today we finish our reading of the Phaedo, which ends with the execution of Socrates. We begin at 98c, where Socrates points to the mind as the cause of change and of differences in the outcomes of physical processes. This is in opposition to the proposal of Cebes that the body is the cause of the soul's destruction. A discussion ensues on the forms of things and the importance of opposites in the separation of one thing from another. As always, I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive link to the event notice on meetup.com. As participants exchange their thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Using the first name from your screen profile, I'll call on you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So in concluding the Phaedo today, we might contemplate Socrates' depiction of the form of a thing as that which defines the thing's boundary in both being and non-being. Having stated that all things come to be in the present as opposites, for example, tall and short appear together as opposites. He says one form cannot mix with another form. A form can be neither increased nor reduced because a thing's form is, he says, indestructible. A form has characteristics that contain it and separate it from other forms, for which Socrates provides the example of even and odd numbers. The form of two, he says, is distinct from the form of three, and their distinction is maintained by the evenness of two in contrast to the oddness of three. The even and the odd are opposites, and since two is composed of an even number of parts and three is not, their forms remain separate. Socrates asserts that he accepts no cause of a thing other than its share in the form of the thing. He goes on to conclude that the cause of the form of life itself, meaning not just one life, but all life for all time, is the soul. He states that since the opposite of life is death, the soul as the cause of life is necessarily deathless and therefore eternal. To this day, this remains a point of contention. And as we reflect on the totality of Phaedo, we are faced with a number of questions we might address. Firstly, what is the source of the mind and its knowledge? Is the mind of each one of us individually separate and not connected to other minds? How do our minds exchange feedback in a process of trial and learning as a participant uh, proposed in our previous episode? Secondly, what are the forms? Do they exist in space and time or only in the realm of the invisible, in the soul and its mind? Do we agree with the proposition that the form of a thing comes to be in opposites, the relative extent of which we determine with number and calculation? Thirdly, why did Plato end the Phaedo with a seemingly outlandish description of the shape of the earth and the underworld and ask us, when we have no knowledge of it, to, quote, risk the belief, unquote, that it is correct? Fourthly, is the soul immortal? Do we agree with Socrates that the soul is the cause of life? In a previous episode, one participant proposed that the soul is information. 
And if that is the case, since we are subject to the universal law of conservation of information, how is the record of the soul maintained? And lastly, if it could be proven beyond any doubt that the soul exists and is immortal, what difference would that make to us today, 2,400 years after Plato wrote about it? I thought we could maybe start with that first question, uh, the nature of knowledge and, um, and, and the role of the mind in, in understanding knowledge. Uh, so what is the source of the mind and its knowledge? And here I wanted to highlight um, a section that uh, is in the notes. So let me just share my screen. This is from 98C to 99C. Let me just read this here. This starts off where Socrates is saying that the cause of physical actions is not the, physic, the physics of it itself. Uh, the cause is the mind. And he, he says this, as I said in the introduction, because Cebes has proposed that the soul is destroyed by the body. Every time the soul enters the body, it's destroyed a little bit more. And so after a number of times that the soul is reborn and enters bodies, the body destroys it until it can no longer regenerate itself. And so Socrates says, well, that's not the cause of, of generation and destruction. He says the cause is the mind. And so here at 98C, he's, he's referring to uh, the works of Anaxagoras that he's read. Uh, and Anaxagoras was a philosopher who said that things are just all mixed up together. There's no separation between things. And Socrates says that he was disappointed with the works of Anaxagoras that he read. He says, this wonderful hope was dashed as I went on reading and saw that the man, Anaxagoras, made no use of mind, nor gave it any responsibility for the management of things, but mentioned as causes air and ether and water and many other strange things. That seemed to me much like saying that Socrates' actions are all due to his mind, and then in trying to tell the causes of everything I do, to say that the reason that I'm sitting here is because my body consists of bones and sinews, because the bones are hard and they are separated by joints, the sinews are such as to contract and relax, and they surround the bones along with flesh and skin which hold them together. Then as the bones are hanging in their socket, the relaxation and contraction of the sinews enable me to bend my limbs, and that is the cause of my sitting here with my limbs bent. He says, well, that's not really the cause. I mean, these are all physical things, but they're not the causes of his actually sitting there. He says, again, he would mention other such causes from my talking to you, sounds and air and hearing and a thousand other such things, but he would neglect to mention the true causes, that after the Athenians decided it was better to condemn me, for this reason it seemed best for me to sit here and more right to remain and endure whatever penalty they ordered. For by the dog, I think these sinews and bones could have long ago been in Megara or among the Boeotians, taken there by my belief as to the best course, if I had not thought it more right and honorable to endure whatever penalty the city ordered rather than escape and run away. And here he's talking about the fact that he could have, uh, th there were people who were willing to get Socrates out of Athens after the, uh, after he was uh, condemned to execution for corruption of the youth, but he chose to stay in Athens. So it wasn't his body that chose, it was his mind that chose is what he's saying here. And he goes on to say, to call those things causes is too absurd. If someone said that without bones and sinews and all such things, I should not be able to do what I had decided, it would be right. But surely to say that they are the cause of what I do, and not that I have chosen the best course, even though I act with my mind, is to speak lazily and carelessly. Imagine not being able to distinguish 
the real cause from that without which the cause would not be able to act as a cause. And so maybe I'll just stop that reading there and just point out, you know, the word imagine there is, I thought it was kind of really interesting because here he's talking about the mind and imagination is a function of the mind. Um, and, you know, he's, he's saying that we have to understand the, the, the causes of things. And so the mind is that which understands the causes of things. And it's also that which manages those causes. It understands the connection between cause and effect. So the effect is that he's about to be executed. And the cause of that is that he chose to stay in Athens rather than to escape as he could have done. Um, so this is, this is kind of the, you know, the understanding or, or getting to understand what Socrates' conception of the soul is and the role of the mind in the soul. And I just wondered what, uh, what we thought of that in terms of the nature of the knowledge that the mind acquires. How does the mind acquire knowledge? Well, he's, he's talked at the beginning of the, the Phaedo about things coming to be in opposites. Um, and so how does the mind accumulate knowledge and act upon that knowledge. I'm just wondering if there's any thoughts on what he's saying here as to the real cause of things. So he's saying there's a real cause and then there's things that people think are causes that uh, aren't in fact causes. He says, you know, that people give it a name that does not belong to it. And so how do we, how do we distinguish between what really is a cause and what we think is a cause? We can go on from, from here to look at the opposites. So we'll take JK, your thoughts. So is this, so in other words, is he saying that there's no free will, but the, um, but it's, you, you're, um, you're acting based on, based on the, what you believe is the cause of your, um, of your actions. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, which, whatever that is, the mind, the mind is not, you know the individual, but the mind is the uh, is the uh, is the soul or the pre pre individual. The question of free will. It's, it, is he saying here? Are, are you saying is he questioning whether there is free will? Yeah, I think uh, well, he's he's trying to you know uh, locate the real cause, mm -hmm. distinguish a real cause from from uh, the uh, <clears throat> from what we think is the the actual cause, um, mm -hmm. and um, and if you can know what the real cause is, then you act upon the based on the real cause. Mm -hmm. But the uh, but somehow that kind of uh, knowledge extinguishes the notion of a free will. Is it? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you choose to? Is that a choice, or is that um, mm -hmm. you know? Is that just knowledge? Good question. Uh, so free will versus knowledge. Uh, and does the will act on knowledge? I mean, I guess, I guess what he's said here is that he has chosen to stay in Athens where he could have escaped. Um, so is that a sign of, is he acting on free will there or is he acting on what he thinks is knowledge? Um, so I guess that's, this may be an interesting distinction to make free will versus knowledge. Yeah, also the um, idea that he chose to remain um has been interpreted uh, you know and willing to die and he he also socrates also argued that the reason why he did that was because he sees himself as a member of the state he's mm -hmm. identified with the state 
So the state is he's loyal to because of his loyalty to the state, he's willing to sacrifice his individual self for the state. So, you know, is is he is that a is that a, is that one of free will or is that um, you know is that a, a one of um, of being you know uh, his will being determined by the state? An interesting thought. I'm wondering what other people think about that. It's uh, is it the state or the laws of the state? I guess that, or maybe the the society that he feels bound to, um, and is it that. Is is it the fact that he feels bound to that that's causing him to stay there, or does he act? Is he acting on some other uh, principle or or knowledge? So it's actually an interesting distinction to make. Um, thank you for raising that, uh, Steve. What are your thoughts? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Made me think of uh, the Buddhist uh, concept of dependent origination, and I think from what I get from it is that uh, Socrates is limiting that to just the physical things of his body. You could also say, you know, all the reasons he's giving for the real cause or the uh, best cause is he was, you know, his parents happened to meet, he happened to be born in, in Athens. Uh, he was indoctrinated by, you know, the culture that he lived in. And, you know, you can, there's a there's a whole set of you know how is he there on that day and how was he you know teaching what he's teaching there's also there's a whole string of things that are dependently rigid you know that have are caused by other things you know so it's not just the physical things of his body it's also all the causes <clears throat> that you know the cultural causes you know the you know you know the uh, like I said, where he was born and, uh, you know, who he happened to have as a teacher and, and you know, how his, you know, all those beliefs came together and, and you can, you know, run it all the way back to, you know, how, you know, humans happened to evolve, you know, because the dinosaurs went extinct and mammals were able to, uh, to evolve because there were no dinosaurs <coughs> around. So, you know, can, can I think he's... It, to summarize my view, I think he's limiting uh, causality to just this, uh, to what would be the the idea, the physical, uh, to the agents at that time. That's interesting. That's um, kind of, I think you're talking about a sequence of cause and effect that has led to this point. So for every cause, there's there's an effect, and, and then that causes another, or that results in another cause. Um, Right, and it's just, yeah. and that is that is the it isn't a mind per se. Mm -hmm. It's it's just that there's, uh, you know, there are causes, mm -hmm. and there are conditions. Right, right, and so to the extent, I guess that any cause would also have an effect. I don't know whether that's implicit in here. Whether any cause, whether a cause <clears throat> necessarily has an effect, but if it has an effect, then the effect is is something that's other than the cause. And if it's the mind that's resulting in the cause, then the mind is only partially responsible for what happens. Like the mind is responsible for the cause, but the effect is outside of the agency of the mind. Now, the, I wouldn't say the mind's responsible for the cause. The cause is responsible for the mind. Mm. 
were not responsible. The cause, pre- the cause, the cause preceded the effect. Mm-hmm. So it's not like any. There's no inherent, <coughs> inherent uh, property per se of either one. It's it's just that one precedes the other. It's not uh, the the effect has no. Uh, uh, I forget what you said exactly, but yeah, it didn't, it's uh, there's there's no uh, there's no ownership of the cause by the effect. It's it just preceded it preceded it, so it's it's part it's a component of of its coming into existence. Right. Interesting. So the the right. So the so I guess you know do we do, when we trace back to the origin of everything you know would the would everything start with a cause would the cause be the first thing that ever happens and then the effect is the second thing that ever happens and just wondering what people think about that and if the cause is the first thing that ever happened then what's responsible for that um jose your thoughts yeah my thought is um the, the way that I see this is that uh, you know, remember that before Socrates, the pre-Socratics, that uh, Anaxagoras was one of them, mm-hmm. they were they were more interested in the physical as- aspect of the universe. Uh, they didn't uh, they didn't care or they didn't um, investigate too much about uh, human human behavior. So for for them and and Socrates changed that. Socrates say that he doesn't care about the material things, he cares about the human beings. So now, uh, Anaxagoras and, and all, all these pre-Socratic, for them, the, the, cause of, the cause of everything or the major cause was the, what they call the material, the material cause. Mm-hmm. So later, Aristoteles, he, he did a, a whole theory about the, the causes, and he has four causes, the material cause, that's how fish is made. Efficient cause is a, like a principle of stability. Formal cause, in a sense, and final cause, the end goal of the object. So now, uh, I think uh, Socrates here, um, he's, uh, he's doing an advance, I, I think, uh, and he started of this, maybe maybe Aristoteles building this theory, and, and he's, in, he's uh, putting here the... the like uh, what is called the final cause, so the end goal of the object. In this case, uh, the human for human people, the end goal is the, the mind, whatever the mind says. I, I think this is the. So he's discarding an exodus that will explain any. He said an exodus will explain anything but the material cause. And uh, and, and he well, it's, it's kind of. Uh, you know, like a little bit of a joke what he's saying, you know? but uh, but uh, that, that was the way. So he's refuting that and introducing the 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 end end cause, the theological for humans. Interesting. The end the end cause as the mind. Yeah, it, it, that's that's an interesting way of, of summarizing it, and I think it reminds us of the section that we ended with last time, which was ninety six to ninety seven where Socrates says that he used to be keen on the study of natural philosophy, which would be the study of physics, I guess. And um, he concludes that at the end, he didn't really understand what the cause of anything was. 
And he used the number two as an example of he didn't know what caused the number two. Was it the addition of the first one to the second one, the second one to the first one, uh, the combination of them both, or the division of one thing into two parts? Uh, so, you know, I guess the 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 order of causes is something that he was talking about there. And I, I think he's he's called that into question. And so now he's saying that it's the mind that sets the ordering of the causes and not the physical. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting, I think, as you were explaining, Jose, that this kind of turning away from the material into the immaterial. Um, and, and clearly he's got an, an, a, a conception of physics that, you know, that which is visible um, versus the invisible, which is the soul. And he's, he's clearly divided the universe into the visible component, which is the physical component, and the invisible component, which is the, the soul. Um, JK. Yeah, it seems like if he's talking about, you know, in these uh, causes, you know, and uh, relating to, to mind and body, um, Aren't those in terms of uh, mechanical causes, you know, that um, that are you know that are based on science and but the uh, but if you're talking about mind, maybe mind is not amenable to this kind of uh, description uh, of a mechanical you know physical description, you know, and um, so it's um, you know mind is is an assumption, right? Like he says in 100b, he says that, um, you know, uh, I propose to make a fresh start from these, those principles of mine, which I you know so well. That is, I, as I am assuming the existence of absolute beauty and goodness and magnitude and all the rest of them. So it's an assumption, right? Of, um, so the, the whole notion of mind should, and is an assumption. And rather than talking about it in terms of, um, you know, causes as if you can identify, right? You can't, you can't identify, you can't identify um, mind or spirit or soul, right? It's an assumption. So how could you talk about it as a, in terms of uh, me mechanical, you know, mechanical causes? It's not like it's not like one billiard ball, you know, talking about one billiard ball colliding into another billiard ball. It's you know, isn't that outside the purview of uh, of uh, of our understanding to talk about in terms of mechanical causes? Uh, you talk about the soul, the mind, and what is um, absolute. A good question is 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 the mind's operation knowable? I guess is maybe the. The question there, um, and and do we have to make assumptions about the mind? I, I like I like that uh, quote from 100D. In fact, I'll, I'll read that in a in a few minutes more more fully. I just wanted to explore that because it, there's a very specific thing in that section that he talks about in terms of the way we come to know things uh, about opposites. But you've pointed out, J.K. the the question of or the distinction between mechanical cause and causes that are not mechanical. Uh, so the mind maybe um, creates cause based on meaning rather than mechanical processes. And I, th I think here we need to make sure that there's a distinction between the brain, which is a physical thing, 
in the mind, which is not a physical thing, or at least nobody has uh, nobody has identified the a physical thing that is a mind. People know what the physics of a brain is, but not necessarily of the mind. So, um, so yeah, we can we can explore that uh, that thought. Uh, Steve, your ideas. Um, as far as um, you know, thinking of the mind being not physical, that's just, I would point out that would be a, a dualistic uh, view, which I'm not saying is wrong or right, just, just pointing that out that it seems like is. And, you know, the, just because we're further along with understanding the brain, it doesn't mean that <clears throat> the mind isn't something physical. It's like we're the individuals that, you know, we understand to possess a mind are all physical beings that are, that, you know, where does this mind come from? Is it being, you know, it's a very good argument could be that the physical uh, brain and body and neural system is creating this mind. You could look at mind as perhaps a software. So I just, you know, put that point. And my second was about Jose's about uh, causes. And it made me think about uh, that that would be a, a tele teleological view that, you know, things happen because of uh, that things are caused for an end results. Uh, the example that I recall briefly is, is uh, from Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh sees, hears bees. So he hears, if there's a sound of bees, there must be honey and bees make honeys for bears that like to eat honey. So that's the view that things are happening because of, you know, the, you know, from our, for our personal egocentric uh, perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And, and um, I guess I, I shouldn't have assumed that the mind is necessarily not physical. I, I guess the jury is still out on that question. Um, although I think there still is that distinction, which is being subject to determination. So it hasn't been concluded yet. Uh, but I guess, you know, it's possible that a mind could be physical. Um, and yeah, I guess in terms of cause, is it something that we are looking for the end result uh, when we are causing something to happen. Um, so thank you for those points. Um, JK, your thoughts? Yeah, at the same time, you know, think of uh, the mind as a software and and uh, and based on hard hardware is um, is to uh, you think of uh, the uh, that <clears throat> that the mind is an epiphenomenon of the brain and somehow it is dependent on the physical brain. And I think uh, you know, I think the Platonic view, this view that the mind is 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 um, is the cause, right? Would be would be different from that, right? And uh, and like in quantum mechanics, right? Quantum physics, don't don't we kind of sort of have a hint of that uh, in the you know how the uh, you know when they do the experiments with the photon. The waves, right? Um, we, their photons. The, these lights are, you know, light is emitting waves. But when there's an observer there, you know, we can only uh, the observer. Then all of a sudden, the waves turn into particles. So you know, so in other words, it means that we can only 
see the part, you know, see it in terms of particles because we can only understand maybe the the materiality of reality of, uh, of what is real. Uh, in terms of in terms of what is real, we can only see it in material terms or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, but in reality, it is uh, it is the you know uh, the reality is that they're waves. And it's something that we maybe we can only reduce, you know, into something um, immaterial, perhaps something like that. So, yeah, I, I, I think the idea of the mind is uh, is is a kind of uh, yeah, it's something that we don't we don't uh, it's not visible. We can't we still don't understand, but it's uh, it, it is uh, you know. So instead of the physical being the cause of the mind, it's pretty. Probably, you know, probably the other way around, right? So the assumption is more, it seems more reasonable. Interesting. Um, you say the example of the quantum mechanics and that effect, you know, the observer effect that when you observe two beams of light coming through, or one beam of light coming through two slits in a, um, in a barrier, the observation actually changes the scattering pattern of that light as if it, versus if you didn't observe it. So the observation itself causes a change in the physical process. Um, and that really makes me think, you know, that the mind in my, in my thinking, the mind is the observer and what it is observing is the physics. So the mind, the observer and the observed have to be separate. Um, and that's what gives the mind some agency. If the mind was connected to the physical part, then the mind wouldn't necessarily have agency. Like if it did anything, it would change <clears throat> itself. Whereas that, that separation of mind and physical uh, allows the mind to act upon the physical. Um, so it was an interesting example. I think that uh, you know maybe is a way a helpful way of thinking of that distinction between the observer and the observed. Uh, so we'll go to Jose. <clears throat> yes, uh, <clears throat> and there is another thing that uh, for the Greeks and uh, for Socrates, Plato and, and Aristoteles, yes, uh, later, um, they have this uh, thing called the function argument and, uh, and saying that everything in the world has a function. So everything has a, a purpose. And the purpose is what guides everything. And for the human beings, well, after there is, a, there is a, an argument there and conclude that if for a human being, the rational activity is a function. So this is what guides everything in the, the human. And this, is, uh, this goes to, the, to the, this theological uh, cause that uh, he's introducing here. So Anaxagoras is saying that the only thing that matters is the bones and the sinews and the, and the way that I am sitting here, so all physical, but he said that this is absurd, that, uh, that is not that, that uh, well, that is a part of the thing because it's, it's a cause as well, but it's not a, the real, real cause in this case. The real cause is theological, it's the mind, is that my rational activity asks me to do that, and it is the function. Everything has and, a uh, and another thing, I am, I am, I am really interesting in, uh, in, uh, in uh, discussing this, uh, this part that uh, J.K. mentioned, the I think hundred C or something, that about the hypothesis of how how he built a hypothesis for the theorist forms, and this is extremely interesting. So we're going to, to 
It definitely, and I, I think that that's coming up next because I think that really gets us into this idea of the forms and understanding what Plato was trying to say with the forms. So we'll go to that uh, shortly. And so thank you for that. And we'll go to Steve and then JK. Yeah. Um, as far as the quantum mechanic view, that's just, uh, that is, you know, just to point out, that's only one theory. It's the Copenhagen theory. And that's not necessarily the established theory. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the, there's both, you know, if, you know, I'm not a physicist or mathematician, but what I understand, the wave function doesn't say whether there's waves or particles, um, you know, in what that's doing. It's just, you know, when somebody observes that they, this is the effect that you see. So there's many worlds of, you know, theory and all sorts of other theories. So, uh, and the fact saying that the mind creates the physical, it's, so my basic question would be, you know, what what created things before there were, you know, we human, you know, when did the mind start? You know, humans, when humans were uh, on the same ladder of the evolutionary chain as chimpanzees, when they were back as mammals, when they were, you know, single organisms, so, and before the earth. So what created, you know, before there were minds on the earth, what created the physical universe? Mm -hmm. it, it, and definitely, yeah, the, the quantum mechanical process is definitely not settled. And, you know, so whether the mind causes a wave collapse and reduces it to a point, uh, I think that's still in question, but the fact that the observation does cause a change in the physical result in the physical outcome, I think is, is something that has been understood. And it's just a, a question of how that change actually occurs uh, is certainly important. And, you know, so you raise the, the, the important question of what is the source of the mind itself? Uh, you know, how did the mind arise originally? Like, has the mind always been there or did the mind just, spring up from nothing. Um, it's a really, I mean, that's, you know, what is the cause of the mind itself? Uh, and, you know, has the mind always been here, even though humans may have only been on earth for, you know, I think a few hundred thousand years. Um, does that mean that the mind only started a few hundred thousand years ago? Or has the mind always been in the universe in some form? Is it okay to make a comment about that? Yeah, go ahead. So you're talking about how did the mind form in human beings? Well, some of the evidence goes back to um, jellyfish. That you know, jellyfish are one of the world's most oldest um, one of the world's most oldest uh, animals, and they don't have any brains. They just have um, neurons or neuronal pathways that cause them to do. They don't really think; they just do or respond on um, genetic impulse. You know, you remember millions of years ago that most of the uh, land-based animals, they originally derived out of the ocean, which is, you know, um, basically where your um, jellyfish came from. So what happened was um, animals that were in the ocean started laying eggs that were nearer to the shore uh, to protect them from predators. And then, and some of them, instead of, you know, swimming into the uh, ocean, swam towards land and later would evolve. And, um, you know, I guess some of those characteristics of 
neurons that would be the makeup of, you know, prehistoric jellyfish, you know, through millions of years of evolution would develop into a simple brain. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, they say Africa is the start of hominids or, you know, homo sapiens, that sort of things, humanids. And one of the basic thinkings of how did um, the human brain evolve into having intellect was that as, you know, Homo erectus would begin to stand up through millions of years and walk, one of the theories is that some of the plant life, such as psychoactive, um, as we all know it in the drug world, um, magic mushrooms and hallucinogenic drugs, some of the uh, Homo erectus, you know, early, very primitive humanoids would start eating psychoactive plants and organic matter. And from that, that would actually increase brain development to where they begin the hallucinations that they had began to expand their creativity, which ultimately over the course of millions of years would develop intellect from that. The creativity and curiosity spanned by that would actually further human um, human development to have what you consider a modern brain. And, and the thing is, is that I'm not for drugs. I don't do drugs. I never have. And I'm against them. And drugs would be a very horrible thing for people to do. They would ruin themselves if they ever tried it. Or a lot of people already have, I guess you could say. But that's one of the theories or thoughts behind it as to how development of the human mind. Because a lot of the material that's in a, um, a uh, what do you call it, a... Um, Jellyfish neurons, um, they're about the oldest creature that ever, I, th I think one of the oldest creatures that ever existed. Their neuronal pathways are the same things in, in some primitive regard or performs the same function as what's in modern humans today. Yeah, interesting. So it's, uh, it's you know, the evolution of the human mind could be tied to the evolution of other minds. And, you know, it, I guess maybe this idea that, uh, how much is caused by a sense of reality versus a sense of something that's not real, as you were talking about in, in terms of the yeah. hallucinogens. So it's it's an interesting idea. Um, and yeah. Well, there's not there's not just you know one concrete answer. Mm -hmm. There are yeah. many things in the world yeah. that shaped human development. Yeah. Um, it's a question of, of how we know these things too, and I think that's that's an important part in, in terms of our, our form of knowledge. And I think that's something that we want to go to in that section from uh, yeah. 100, well, when, 100 C and D. Yeah, well, when so. you see, when a, when a very primitive prehistoric um, hominid or human would, you know, take a hallucinatory drug, they didn't really have much intellect. But seeing whatever visions or thoughts or creativity that would be expressed, Force them to think about what they had experienced, and that would be the world's first insight into human intellect. Um, to for them searching for some sort of an answer to the strange sensation they felt that sprouted humans to think, and then Homo sapien, or what is it? I think is it not Homo sapien, but Neanderthal means thinking man that may have been the prehistoric era um, where humans first began to think because Neanderthal, the definition of Neanderthal means 
thinking man. And that would be the starting point for advanced intellect in humans. Well, interesting. So let, let's keep that in mind, this, this evolution that may go be, you know, a lot be a lot before the existence of humans and uh, see how we can see how we can make sense of that in terms of the way knowledge is is uh, is formed um so we'll go to jk yeah it's interesting um, how drugs might have contributed to the expansion of consciousness in in man and um and in according to anthropologists they've studied uh different um cultural um you know um rituals of of many you know um uh you know um groups of people that uh, rely on drugs for those religious rituals mm. and that might have uh, also helped but uh, you know but the idea that um that uh you know the consciousness or the mind development is only based on this kind of um you know physical evolution uh, is you know I'm, I'm sure there's something to that, but uh, we're talking about what uh, came first, and, and uh, what uh, or if it's inherent in nature, whether, whether the mind is somehow uh, had to come, you know, uh, come about accidentally or by circumstances that the, um, you know, um, that it had nothing to do with the original inherent nature of of the of the um of the culture and uh, of of, the, of of you know human beings but um yeah maybe we could uh, talk about this you know the idea of what preceded what and but uh, i think the uh evolution as a you know this kind of evolutionary process sounds like just it's still based on you know the physical coming first and and i go back to um einstein's uh, notion that uh of uh, E equals mg squared means the energy. I, I, I would say preceded the matter, right? But maybe they came about the same time. But the, the energy, you know, equals mg squared means matter is also, is energy. You know, so organic matter is a kind of energy, right? And so you could think of perhaps energy, maybe maybe the mind. Uh, you know, uh, mind is a form of energy that is already there you know, before the matter. So, yeah, that's, uh, so that means that um, the assumption that Plato's making is that in, in here, uh, this, this this dialogue is that uh, mind precedes, precedes matter. Um, is it okay to make a comment? That, that's actually very interesting. Is it, is it okay? You don't mind if I continue on what you're saying? Is it okay? Yeah, just, just briefly, if you would, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, um, you know, in relation to what the gentleman had said, dinonucleic acid is the building blocks of life, also known as DNA. In order for an adaptation to take place within um, an adaptive environment, in other words, evolution, the code has to be written within the DNA or it cannot adapt into that, even if it would, you know, mark creature's best interest to be able to have an adaptive trait to you know for instinctual survival or anything like that in other words if you have a butterfly and it's in the desert it can turn gray like all the rocks um but if you take the same butterfly and you put it into um say a jungle where everything's green 
it possibly may or possibly may not be able to evolve itself into being green. That code for green has to be put into the, um, the genetic writing of the DNA for it to exist to be able to do that. So in other words, you can't just take anything, put it anywhere and have it just become what it would work for that environment over millions of years. It might grow a different way to adapt. It doesn't, it's not distinct. You know what I'm saying? Um, now the thing about molecules, see, you're talking about, um, Einstein's, uh, theory. Well, basically the theory that he created to develop the, the what is it? The, the atom bomb during world war two. Um, and was an MC squared mass times carbon squared equals energy. I think that's what the mass times the speed of light squared. Oh, okay. 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 Um, you're referring to energy as particles. Now in relation to the dinonucleic acid genetic code, if you were to take an electron beam microscope and sh shoot those, um, that matter um, of whatever you want to take down into the smallest particles, most people are only familiar with the periodic table of elements in terms of electron, neutron, proton. You rearrange the combination of those three particles, you get a different element. What most people are not aware of in advanced chemistry is that you can actually take an electron, neutron, or proton, which is the basis of an atom, which you know becomes a molecule, and you can break it down into smaller particles than just electron. And what you have is swirls of energy that swirl around even at a smaller scale than um, you're just single electron. And, and if you break it down further, one of the greatest kept secrets in chemistry, what is it at, what are those swirls of energy? They don't exist. It's actually just space. And, you know, and in a, now, since you're talking about an evolution type of debate or, or thinking, um, what does that mean? If, if, if you break down an electron, neutron, or, a, you know, or electron, neutron, or a proton into the smallest part, you get a swirl of energy and you break it down to that. It doesn't exist. What is it? It means it's space. You're actually God's thought. <laughs> let's 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 um let's if we can just maybe go from here into looking at uh but i'm not, I'm not getting into religion, getting into yeah. religion but the yeah. point is, is as it relates as it relates into dna for what things could adapt into yeah. or what they could not the pattern had to be pre-written because yeah. there's a code to dna for what things can adapt to and what they cannot it seems to be pre-written deeper into the smallest molecules let's, let's go from here and just uh I, I, we need to cover a few other things here i think but i, I think the, the idea that that the mind and I'm, and is perhaps I'm energy i'm not a religious person just yeah. so you know no no i I'm appreciate that religious. no thank you thank you and so i just uh, i want to i want to give others a chance here to uh speak but uh, I think the idea that the mind is energy is an interesting idea. It's, uh, you know, and certainly I think as, as physics maybe pivots more towards this idea of string theory, where, you know, everything is made of these, where the idea is that everything is made of strings of energy, I think is maybe there is some consistency to that idea. So, you know, we can, also, certainly, we can keep that in mind. 
but also that the mind is not just energy, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not blind energy. It, right. It's uh, <clears throat> right, right. It's form and and ma- uh, matter and energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, um, we can go maybe from from here because I wanted to get to this idea of the, the forms and how we accumulate knowledge. And so there's this there's a section from 100, um, 100 C to E. Maybe I'll just read it here. And this goes back to the idea of knowledge uh, coming to us in opposites uh, or things things occurring in opposites, which is how the Phaedo started. And so at 100 C, Socrates is uh, saying to Cebes, he says, consider then whether you share my opinion as to what follows. For I think that if there is anything beautiful besides the beautiful itself, it is beautiful for no other reason than that it shares in that beautiful, and I say so with everything. Do you agree that this this do you agree to this sort of cause? And CB says, I do. Socrates goes on to say, so he, here he's talking about causes. He says, I no longer understand or recognize those other sophisticated causes. And if someone tells me that a thing is beautiful because it has a bright color or shape or any such thing, I ignore these other reasons. For all these confuse me, but I simply naively and perhaps foolishly cling to this, that nothing else makes it beautiful other than the presence of, or the sharing in, or however you may describe its relationship to that beautiful we mentioned. For I will not insist on the precise nature of the relationship, but that all beautiful things are beautiful by the beautiful. That, I think, is the safest answer I can give myself or anyone else. And if I stick to this, I think I shall never fall into error. This is the safe answer for me uh, or anyone else to give, namely, that it is through beauty that beautiful things are made beautiful. And so here he's he's going back to this, uh, the notion that things come to be in opposites. And he goes on with an example of tall and short. Uh, so he goes on to look at... Uh, um the the nature or, or the height of the, the people he's talking to is so he's got Phaedo and Simeus in front of him. And he's remarked that Phaedo is the tallest, Socrates is the shortest, and Simeus is in between. And so what is the cause of the tallness of Phaedo versus the uh, intermediate nature of Simeus and the shortness of Socrates? Um, so he concludes that it's because when tall comes to be, short is necessarily there at the same time. So things come to be in opposite. So the, the idea or the notion of tall necessarily entails the notion of short. Um, so things come to be in opposites. And so here he's, I think, saying that knowledge comes to be uh, or comes to the mind uh, in these opposites. And he has earlier in the in the Phaedo said that it's with the equal that we determine uh, the relative distance between these opposites or, or the relative uh, nature of these opposites. Um, and so here he's given an interesting example, you know, in this passage from uh, the passage that I just read and then the passage that follows from 102b to uh, 103c. And again, I, I just looking for people's views on this, you know, this idea that we started off the FIDA with that things come to be in opposites and just take it to understanding of cause and the knowledge that the mind uh, gains over time. Um, do we see any 
connection here to our own uh, understanding of knowledge? Is, is this the way knowledge comes to us or does knowledge come to us in a different way? Um, this kind of idea of relativity of, of, of things. So at 102b to 103c, he makes the point, uh, again, here, here he's talking about the relative height of Phaedo and Simeus. Nor is he shorter than Phaedo because Phaedo is Phaedo, but because Phaedo has tallness compared with the shortness of Simeus. That is so. So then Simeus is called both short and tall, being between the two, presenting his shortness to be overcome by the tallness of one and his tallness to overcome the shortness of the other. Now, it seems to me that not only tallness itself is never willing to be tall and short at the same time, but also that tallness in us will never admit the short or be overcome. But one of two things happens. Either it flees and retreats whenever it's opposite the short approaches or it is destroyed by the approach. It's not willing to endure and admit shortness and be other than it was, whereas I admit and in uh, I admit and endure shortness and still remain the same person and then the short man, but tallness, being tall, cannot venture to be small. In the same way, the short in us is unwilling to be, to become or to be tall ever, nor does any other of the opposites become or be its opposite while still being what it is. Either it goes away or is destroyed when that happens. We're saying that the tall is always tall, that, that idea in our minds of tall Tall cannot become short, but tall and short come from each other. But once they become, tall is always tall and short is always short. So that, that's the general idea that he's trying to get across is our understanding of things is in some sort of relative sense, I think. And I'm just wondering what we make of this. We'll go to JK and Moshe and then Jose. So is he saying that our understanding of things is always, um, you know, in terms of this relative? relativity of these opposites that's the way i'm reading it so i mean is that a is that a like an absolute proposition because <laughs> then he's making a then he's saying everything you know everything is relative and that's the absolute principle but is that absolute principle also relative that's a good question um I mean, certainly, you know, with this example of tall versus short, you know, when the mind thinks of tall, there is no universal law that says tall means anything over six feet, for example. There's no universal law that says that, but we each have a way of gauging tall versus short, right? So it, we've got relative perspective. Um, so maybe it's a question of perspective and there's no absolutes in perspectives. We each have a different perspective. And so, you know, the part that I read first, you know, the 100C to uh, 100C to E, uh, that's where he's talking about the beautiful, you know, and so each one of us has a different conception of the beautiful, uh, but something is beautiful and the opposite of beautiful is ugly. So something can't be beautiful and ugly at the same time. It's either beautiful to some degree or ugly to some degree. Um, so I think that's that's the idea that you know each of us has a different way of gauging this, but somehow there's this division between things. So beautiful and ugly divide equally, uh, tall and short divide equally, and somehow we find that equal point between them, and that's how we determine the nature of something is is its share in either being tall or being short. But he's also, before that, he also said that um, beauty is, there's an absolute beauty, right? 
There's an absolute beauty. Yeah. There's an absolute idea of beauty. Hmm. He's now saying that in the world that we that we are in, we we see things in relative terms. Mm -hmm. That that's the way I read it, and I'm wondering how others think so about it. Yeah. So there's this perspective, perspective title um, position that he's taking. You know that contradicts so that uh, is in conflict with the. With the the idea of the um, of an absolute beauty, right? Yeah, I, I'm wondering if it's absolute beauty or uh, the idea that there is something that is beautiful. Like it, it's it's not that any particular thing has been designated as beautiful. Like there's no universal law that says this is beautiful and that is not beautiful. But there's a universal <clears throat> concept of beautiful. That's the way I'm reading it. I'm just wondering how others. What others. But he, but he seems to be saying both. He's saying that's there's a concept of beautiful. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that's uh, now he's saying that beauty is only a perspective. Mm -hmm. Right, and I guess it's it's a question of what we think, what we think has a share in the beautiful. So I I might think that something shares in the beautiful more than you think something shares in the beautiful. So we would have a different perspective on on the content of the beautiful in anything um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something that is beautiful absolutely or, or that there is a, a concept of the beautiful absolutely so we'll maybe go to, to Moshe and Jose for your thoughts on on that Moshe how you doing good um I, I want to take it I want to take two steps back uh, the first step back is is to right at the beginning of 100, where Socrates is talking about um, his faith in the ability of thought uh, to contemplate existence, and he says that he is he says I am very far from admitting that he who contemplates existence through the medium of thought sees them only through the glass darkly. He is far from admitting that. But he is not contradicting. He's just saying, I don't like that particular point of view. The other point, the, the point being that that point of view is a legitimate point of view that people who, who contemplate existence through thought are only seeing through the glass darkly because they can't get outside of their own thought. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is about this, this something being absolutely tall. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about, or at least I was, about the distinction between contradictories and contraries. And contraries are things like up and down, hot and cold, tall and short. And one of the examples that I gave was, you know, if I built a ladder from here to the moon, I would be going up and up and up and up and up until I got to a point when I'm starting to go down and down and down and down and down, and yet I have not changed my direction. But we know from a physical standpoint that gravity has, 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 has intervened here. The same thing with tall and short. You know, um, Reem Abdul-Jabbar uh, is taller than Billy Barty, okay? Well, we can't infer from that that there's an absolute tallness. Because Billy Barty could all of a sudden start to grow, you know, take new hormone drugs, and and now he's taller than Al Cinder. So now Billy Barty is tall, and Al Cinder is short. 
So the opposite of tall is not short. The opposite of tall is not tall. And the opposite, opposite of beauty is not beauty. Okay. So it's not as if something can have one property and never have anything, never have anything else. And that's on the logical, from a logical point of view. I also want to point out from an empirical point of view that he says in this passage on 100C or something like that, hold and I am assured in my mind that nothing makes a thing beautiful but the presence and participation in beauty. This idea of participation is very vague in Plato. Okay, we all, we all seem to pass on it, you know, that something's tall because it participates in tallness. But for any particular thing that we would look at that it participates in, dozens if not hundreds of things at the same time, and it can participate in not only the, uh, the same thing could participate in not only the idea of tallness, but also in the idea of not tallness at the same time. So even at the level of, 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 um, uh, of existence, we can have these contradictories out, must take into mind and try to reconcile when we're reading Plato. And, and thanks for a number of good points there. I mean, certainly things could participate in a number of forms. Um, so Socrates might be short or not tall, but he's a number of other things at the same time. Um, I'm not sure, uh, and I don't know what others think, but I'm not sure I see the distinction between the word short and the word or in the, in the, or the term not tall. And I'm wondering if that's a question of um, the way we apply names to particular things. Well, well, if I say that, uh, let's compare Lou Alcindor with the uh, with the Eiffel Tower. Okay, by comparing Lou Alcindor with the Eiffel Tower, that doesn't mean that Lou Alcindor's short. He's just not tall. I mean, if you if you if you use it and you compare in that in in that particular sense. And we can do that for dozens of, you know, of other other contraries at the same time. Okay, and so I guess it, it comes maybe to a question of whether this idea of absolutes is the case, right? So does short mean, um, you know, absolutely below a certain height, uh, and does tall mean absolutely above a certain point? Um, and I'm just wondering. You know, is is it a question of you know relativity instead? You know, so that, so that some things are some things are taller than others. So <clears throat> tall tall goes for an entire range, and the mind sees tall always in contrast to something that isn't tall, which it might call short. Well, that uh, that was an interesting point that you made, and I a thought came to my mind when you said that. The, you know, you were saying that 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 something could something be absolutely tall okay and i was thinking about this for a second and i asked myself the question could something be absolutely a meter long okay well yeah it can be something can be absolutely a meter long if it uh, compares with the well, what what used to be the absolute meter in uh, in paris but has now been replaced by a wavelength it used to be a, a stick, and now it's a wavelength. But everything in the world that is that that has that shares exactly that same property is exactly a, is exactly a meter tall. 
Um, and and the only thing that is not exactly a meter tall is the is the absolute meter itself because it's very me- it, it, it it can't measure itself. So is there an absolute absolute tall? I don't think that there could be an absolute tall like there is an absolute meter. And if there is, it's an it's an idealized thing, but not an existent thing, even even at the level of the forms. That's my that's my opinion this morning at uh, eleven o'clock. Thank you. Yes, and and you raise the important idea of measurement. You know, specific measurement versus a more general category of thinking, which is tall versus one meter, which is a specific thing. Tall is a more general thing. So uh, that's an important distinction. I think that's helpful. So thank you. So we'll go to Jose and then uh, JK, your hand is up. So we'll go to Jose. Okay, like uh, the, way, the way that they are reading this, pack, this passage is, okay, first of all, like, uh, I agree that, uh, that here the concept of forms is very vague. I, I understand that in the next uh, dialogue that we're going to see is uh, Parmenides, we will see a very big, uh, like a critique of the theory. Anyway, I think the objective of him in this in this paragraph and and uh, and, and, and beyond this paragraph, like uh, he's uh, what he's doing is he's trying to compare opposites, and he says, well, something like that because it's a long package. That uh, he says that uh, you cannot have two opposites at the same time, and if you have one, the other one has to retreat or has to be destroyed. This is what he means here, and uh, and after that. He goes on and he goes with uh, snow and, and, and fire and cold and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the end, the conclusion he was to get a, this is the fourth argument that the soul is uh, in, in like a, you can, cannot be destroyed, even if death comes. So the death will retreat and the they cannot be the opposite at the same time. But the, but the, but the soul is the one that will like uh, survive. I, I think this is the objective of this. Uh, this paragraph will start here and, and goes on and on for like two, three pages mm-hmm. in my book. Yeah, he, he, the, the argument of the opposites, yeah. and can only, you can, at the end you can have only one, and the other one will be destroyed that will retreat. So right. he said that this will happen with death and the, and the soul, and the soul will, will prevail. Right, yes, he, he winds up, in, closer to the conclusion, he winds up by saying that the soul is the cause of life. Yeah. And since life, there's no end to life itself. I mean, individual lives, yes, have an end, but life itself doesn't have an end. And so if soul is the cause of life, then life is deathless. And so the soul is deathless. deathless. Yeah, so, so this, this tallness and shortness and et cetera, right. it's, a, it's a preamble to, to right. that argument. Absolutely, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's the way I see it. And and so what he's saying here is that even though things come to be an opposite, so the, the fact that there is something that we think is tall or, or that there is an idea of tall necessarily entails an idea of short, which is the opposite of tall. Um, and we gauge things according to that sense of idea. That's that's the way I'm reading it. And And he says... You know, further here on, um, I like this particular uh, part here, where he's uh, 103C, you know, 
Um, Socrates inclined his head toward the speaker and said, you have bravely reminded us that you do not understand the difference between what is said now and what was said then, which is that an opposite thing came from an opposite thing. Now we say that the opposite itself could never become opposite to itself, either that in us or that in nature. So even though the tall and the short come to be from each other, once they come to be, the tall does not become short and the short does not become tall. So what he's saying is that these forms, the, the form of tall doesn't mix with the, sh the form of short. So you don't get somebody who's midway between tall and short. They either share in the tall or they share in the short. And he uses that example of, of um, Simeus's height versus Phaedo, who's the tallest. Simeus is in the middle and Socrates is the shortest. So he's saying the fact that Simeus is in the, the middle doesn't mean that Simeus has a share of tallness and shortness. Um, yeah. So, so that that's the example. I think that uh, it's an interesting thing to try to keep in to, to try to figure out in your mind because I think we want to think that the forms have a physical, uh, like a physical existence. Like, and that's one of the questions I asked in the introduction: are, are the forms do the forms exist in space and time, or do they just exist in the mind? And so, the idea of tall is not a physical thing; it, it's a mental concept uh and and so can we combine those mental con like is the tall always tall or does the tall mix with short and if it mixes with short does it lose some of its power it, it, does it become anything other than tall well he's saying here no it, it can't it, it doesn't mix the forms are individually separate so each form has something that separates it from uh from its opposite so but it's worth it's worth exploring because this whole idea of the forms is is difficult to understand. And, and you know, one of the questions I have is why didn't Plato tell us exactly what the forms are? Like, why does he kind of leave this little bit of mystery here? Steve, your thoughts? Seems to me that uh, form is uh, and everything we're talking about is a concept. And uh, if you go with <clears throat> Shakespeare and say a rose spells a sweet by any other name. So if a basketball player is called uh, Lou Alcindor or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he's still, you know, that's just a different uh, naming of the same person. So I think it's, we're talking about concepts and whether, um, you know, concepts are applied by uh, people uh, differently at different times, depending on, you know, what they want to uh, express or, um, so I don't think a I don't think that's getting me any closer to understanding of why a form is uh, you know anything more than just a, a concept. Yeah, I, I think I think this is maybe why he started with this idea of the mind uh, because I'm I'm seeing I'm understanding the forms in in terms of mental concepts not physical things <laughs> mental concepts and you know he's he's gone out of his way to to distinguish the realm of the invisible the realm of the non-composite uh, which is you know the soul and the soul's mind uh, versus the realm of the composites and the visible realm which is the physical realm so i think here the forms are not part of that visible physical realm they're just part of that invisible non-composite realm which belongs to the soul and to the and to the mind i think that's that's the way i'm understanding the forms so the form is it's the way that we think 
uh, is what he's saying. I think that this this idea that that we think about things in their contrast or in their opposites, uh, and, and you know, it, as I think about my own thought process, I'm finding that makes sense. You know, I guess when I think of tall, I automatically think of what's not tall, which I call short. Um, but we, we apply different words to it, which I think is a whole other discussion. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, what others think about this idea of, you know, like what exactly is he saying by the forms? Jose? To me, the, the, okay, the forms, to me, the form, well, one, one big thing that, the, uh, that happened in those days, you were the sophist, and the, the sophist, they has this concept of uh, relativism or subjectivism. Mm -hmm. So if you you remember, like uh, reading uh, some of the dialogue, like uh, the Republica, the Book One, that we didn't read in this, but uh, they are several conceptions of justice, and, uh, and that's what the sophists that they have different concepts. So and they apply whatever is convenient for them. So when when Plato developed this uh, form theory, he he want, I, I think this is my, 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 my understanding is that, uh, that uh, he wanted to have the concept of objectivism. So, so there is only one definition of, of justice. There is one definition of beauty. There is one definition, and this is in a separate world. And whatever concepts that we have, that you, me, or whatever have the justice, they are just imperfect copies or, or copies of the, of the real concept. And uh, so the, whatever happened in this world, like your idea of something, your idea, they are different. They are not the, they are not the ones. Only the philosophers, only the, the really enlightened philosophers, they just, they get to that, that concept that is the, the, the truth. And, uh, they, and they belong to another world. And now, as I, as I, as I said before in the, another <clears throat> last week or a couple of weeks ago, the only way to bring these concepts to, to our world, to the physical world, because they are, in, they are in a separate world. There is no connection between the, like our, our, our world, our physical world and the world of the forms. So the only thing in common, the only thing is the, the soul, because the soul travels. It goes, it, it resides initially in the, in the, in the forms, in the, that, that realm, like a the non-physical. And when you are born, it comes to us. Now, how can we get this knowledge of the forms? Because the, the, the soul, it comes with this knowledge. And we, by recollection, you can get to the truth, to the truth, uh, to, the, to the forms. So the concept of justice and everything by recollection. And how do we do the recollection? The, like uh, by the dialectic, like uh, talking to each other and presenting arguments and exploring and contemplation and whatever. This is what philosophers, they get by recollection to get to this perfection. So the forms, I think, is the, the, abs the absolute truth of things, the true concepts. Anything else in here is a, is a copy. And all the philosophers, you get to the real concept. This is my whole mm, so Some interesting thoughts there in terms of uh, recollection and and the form of knowledge, uh, which I think is something that, you know, to remind what I think it was our last episode where um, Socrates talked about 
our thoughts coming to be in opposites. Um, so, or thoughts are triggered by opposites. So if we think of tall, we necessarily think of short. Um, and that's his, one of his ideas about uh, all knowledge is recollection, uh, is that that's how our thought process goes. Um, and so that's an interesting, interesting idea there that, uh, you know, again, this, this, this idea of opposites and, and identifying the difference between the opposites by finding the equal. So if there's a tall, there is the opposite short and somewhere right in the middle of tall and short, that's the equal, which is neither tall nor short, but he's saying that's the point that we identify in our minds as the way of gauging the relative existence of tall or short. Um, so that's that's kind of the way I'm interpreting this and this idea of form as as that 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 contrast and the way that we find the difference between that contrast. We'll go to Moshe and then to Steve. The Greeks were very sensitive and very clear about the distinction between uh, sense and intelligibility, uh, between perception and intelligibility, and uh, I won't go back to that quote about seeing through the glass darkly but you know Socrates was saying that he was afraid that you know his soul was being blinded by you know uh, trying to apprehend things by the by the senses alone and I'm thinking that one of the common things that and, and, and he goes on to say that uh, that I dare say the simile is not perfect the simile is not perfect so what we do as people is we have a definition of something. Let's say a triangle, very simple thing, three-sided. And we say that the definition of the triangle is different from, you know, what it describes is different from what we can see. For instance, if I draw a triangle on a blackboard or I draw a triangle on a piece of paper or I draw a triangle in the sand, that none of those things are perfect. Okay, so we want to be able to say that the definition has some perfection that the empirical thing cannot have. It seems to me that it's a very easy step to go from the definition to the imperfection of the empirical uh, item to the definition and the perfection of the mental item. But, but we, while we can see the physical item, it doesn't follow from the fact that we're that that we've we've uh, conceived this perfect uh, I, mental item that corresponds with the definition that that item actually exists. I mean, thinking doesn't make it so, and even though we have a definition for it, it doesn't make it that the thing is out there unless you want to get into, you know, some sort of problem like, you know, like Minong and his gold mountain, or even simpler things like unicorns. So I, 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 think, that, I think that Plato is very, is very aware of this, and he's clearly coming down on the side that there are such things as mental perfections. But he has not, I mean, in my mind, he's very suggestive, but he's, he, he's not proven it. Um, and, and I dare say that, that um, uh, you have to have an opposite opinion, you know, like, Hume or somebody like that to, to, you know, throw the definition, you know, throw the idea out uh, altogether. But, you know, I just want to point out the difference, you know, the, the, the mental step that we make between comparing a definition to something 
in the sand with comparing a definition to something that we we think. Thank you. I think that was actually really helpful, Moshe. The you know that when when you said that the definition has perfection that an empirical thing cannot have, um, and you know, that that makes you use the example of a triangle. It makes me think of a circle too, because a circle, you know, a circle has an ideal form because it's made of two pi, but pi never ends, so it goes on forever. So you can never draw a perfect circle. Uh, because theoretically it goes on forever. So in the mind, we know that, you know, we know that there's this continual uh, ratio going on between the circumference and the diameter, but we can never draw that perfectly. So that's an example of the difference between some perfection of definition versus the empirical. And um, so, but as you said, I mean, it, it needs, I mean, we want proof of this, don't we? Uh, and how do we get proof of something like that? Um, so is, is Plato maybe trying to imply that it's not provable? Um, because maybe it's in the domain of the mind and we can't prove things that are in the mind because if maybe as soon as you prove it, you change it. I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a thought. Um, so thank you. That, that, I think that was helpful. Uh, we'll go to Steve and then JK. Um, going back to the uh, soul being the way of, uh, well, first that the, you know, I, that, that the mental and physical are uh, separate. Um, again, I see that as what Plato's proposing, but not necessarily true. But the soul, soul is a concept. So how can uh, a concept uh, be aware be aware of itself, you know. Mm -hmm. So you know, a concept is a con you know a concept. How is a concept aware of itself? And a triangle is a concept, so it it exists as a concept. So it exists. It's it's you know from our point of view as humans talking to each other. Um, there's physical drawings that we make to represent a, a, a triangle. But the triangle is a concept that uh, we have, and um, you know the, the the having of a concept doesn't necessarily preclude. Um, uh, you can't. How how else can we? Uh, we don't have the sense perception. How can we perceive the concept or the? The physical drawing of a triangle. So, if you've ever been knocked out for an operation, you have no uh, perception, so you can't know anything. So, you know, from from uh, my point of view, the only way that you can um, understand or know anything is by having uh, perceptions. Interesting, and and yeah, I mean, certainly there is no physical thing that is triangle, right? It's, I mean, thing, there are physical things that are triangular, but there is no thing in the universe that you can point to to say that is triangle and it is nothing else other than triangle, right? So it's a, it's a concept, I guess. Right, uh, and, but for concept, yeah. why is, what, you know, drawing on a piece of paper is our perception of something. It's right. our concept is, you know, I don't see, why we could say a concept is not a, a physical thing. It is something that we're, you know, some 
somehow we produced this, we spoke this out and, you know, we're saying it to me. So for me, and that's my last word, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's, you know, it seems just as much a, a physical thing, a concept seems just as real as, as a table. Right. Right. And I guess it's, uh, is it maybe that we, when we draw a triangle, we are drawing an image of something of a concept that is a triangle, but we're, what we're doing is we're creating an image of it. So we're not going, we're not doing the original triangle, but we're doing a reproduction of it. Um, maybe that's, maybe that's the difference. Um, so thanks for that. And we'll go to JK and then Jose. Yeah, this notion of um, the principle that there are these uh, forms of tallness and forms of shortness, and they, there's no there's no such thing as an in between, right? Uh, isn't that the uh, the principle of the excluded middle that um, Aristotle, I think, uh, coined uh, to describe his way of thinking about uh, about uh, <clears throat> the uh, logic of um, of um, the logic of uh, what um, of uh, existence, or uh, you know, it, um, it, something is a a equals uh, you know a and not a equals not a. <clears throat> yeah, I just uh, wanted to clarify that. Yeah. If that's that's it goes. It, is that what it's the same kind of thinking in terms mm -hmm. of opposites? Mm -hmm. And there's no such thing. There is there is a you have to, um, you know, um, adhere to the principle of um, non-contradiction of um, the excluded middle. I think I think the way you put it as non-contradiction maybe is is a good way of thinking about it. Perhaps um, you know that the tall cannot contradict itself, and I think that's maybe maybe that's what uh, Socrates is saying in this section here at uh, one hundred three. Was it 103C? I think. Um, yeah, 103C. That tall cannot contradict itself. Uh, it, it it always is tall, and so if if tall were to mix with short, it would start contradicting itself, and it would no longer be tall. And so then, the, the coming to be of opposites would no longer exist. So that's why I think he's saying that once the the form of tall is established, it stays as tall. And the form of short stays stays short, um, and things are tall or short because of their relative participation in those forms. I, I think that's what he's saying. And that the middle, that the excluded middle, I, I you know, we, we could maybe talk about that in a future episode. But uh, you know, the middle maybe is neither tall nor short. And I think what Plato is saying is that the mind goes to that middle to establish the relative or to gauge the relative um, uh, presence of tall versus short in something. Th that's my understanding of it. The, the, the excluded middle in Plato's sense would be the equal. Neither, neither one nor the other, but is equal to both. So uh, thank you for that. The, the excluded middle is an important concept that we should maybe discuss. Um, Jose and then Moshe. Yeah, about, about the, the forms. Uh, the forms is, is, I think, is the most important thing in the, in all Plato philosophy because it explains it is epistemology, ontology, uh, more like uh, ethics, everything. Everything is explained by the forms. And like uh, this thing, uh, uh, some, some, some commented that this thing is not proof. 
So um, I don't know. I, I cannot find the the, the passage, but it's a passage around here that he mentioned the word hypothesis, and uh, and he says that uh, like I've seen, he said something like that. This is not proven, but this is a hypothesis. So he said that we we build a hypothesis, and he explained that uh, the the purpose of that is that uh, his hypothesis it becomes like first principle, and you build you build a theory on top of that. And if the if the if there is no no um, like if the theory functions perfect, you change the hypothesis. But if not, if there is something something wrong, you just change the hypothesis, build the theory again, and etc. And this is the thing with the forms. He built the hypothesis, and he said that so far, he, he, he kind of implied that so far everything works. So there is no, even if it is not proved, like a, being a hypothesis and everything that you built on top of that is not unproven, is, he mentioned that uh, to be okay. So there is no need to, it's like proving first principles. Mm. Anyway, I don't know if, uh, there, there is a passage yeah, I couldn't see my. That's actually at um, 101, 101D and E, and I think what he's saying there with the hypothesis, uh, he says, if, I think what he's talking about is empiricism here, and he's he's saying that that's not the way to go. I think what he's saying is, uh, if someone then attacked your hypothesis itself, you would ignore him and would not answer it until you had examined whether the consequences that follow from it agree with one another or contradict one another. And when you must give an account of your hypothesis itself, you will proceed in the same way. You will assume another hypothesis, the one which seems uh, to you best of the higher ones until you come to something acceptable. But you will not jumble the two as the debaters do by discussing the hypothesis and its consequences at the same time. Um, and I think there he's talking about this constant mixture of hypotheses uh, versus uh, going to the form of a thing. Uh, and and that goes back to where he says that um, he doesn't accept the cause of anything except for its participation in the form of a thing. Um, so I think he's saying that hypothesis there is maybe not uh, determinative. Like you can form an hypothesis, you can disprove it with another theory, and you can continue going on with theories. But how do you know that you've got the final, the final theory in the first principle? That was my reading of that section in any event. But, but thank you for raising that. I think that's that's an important point about hypothesis. You know, uh, Moshe, your thoughts? Yeah, um, the hypothesis is used. I mean, it, it it's used very well in scientific thinking, uh, but it is not used so well uh, in theoretical or 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 cons or philosophical thinking, uh, as he brought up with the you know the case of the uh, the sophists. Uh, I just want to go back to the the distinction between the law of contradiction and the law of the excluded middle. And that's a distinction in logic between what we call a conjunction and a disjunction. And the law of contradiction is nothing can both be and not be. So those are, those are our conjuncts and you cannot, uh, a conjunction uh, cannot be true. Uh, if either one of the, if e either one of the um, uh, arguments is false. Okay. On the other hand, the law of the excluded middle, everything must either be or not be. Okay. So a proposition in that form can be true, uh, is only true if both of them are false. Okay. 
And the law of the excluded middle is something that has come under fire after, uh, after uh, uh, Aristotle. And I, I, I'm not going to go back and, and, and use, those, um, use those arguments against Plato because I think we, we want to be able to look at Plato uh, and what I call, and understand him, which is what I call, you know, singing a happy song. We want to sing, you know, the happy Plato song. But uh, we do get, when you bring in the law of, 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 um, of the excluded middle, that is something that, that post-Plato and after we finished understanding what Plato is trying to said, say, we can go back and criticize him, you know, from that logical point of view. Thank you for that explanation. I think that was that was very helpful. You know, the, the excluded middle, everything must be or not be, I think, if I, if I got it correctly. And I, I think, you know, maybe if we just maybe not think about those words excluded middle, but just think again about what he's saying about the forms, uh, both of tall and short in this example. And then he goes on um, in this 103E to 104C um, that I've got here. And, and here he, exam he uses the example of the even and the odd. So, uh, you know, a number is e either even or it's odd. Um, and evenness and oddness are opposites, um, but they, they help to keep the form of a number um, as itself. So the form of two, for example, shares in, in the characteristics of evenness, whereas the form of three does not. The, the form of three is not even, it's odd. Uh, and so the evenness and oddness, those opposites, keep the, the form of two and the form of three separate. Um, so, you know, this idea of everything must be or not be, so two must be even uh, and must not be odd, and three must be odd and not even. Uh, same as tall must be tall and short must be short uh, and, and not each other. Uh, I think that was, that was uh, an interesting way of thinking about it, and the idea of conjunction, I think, was, was helpful for that explanation too, so I, uh, I think that was uh, helpful and appreciated. Um, I wanted to go maybe to this idea of, um, you know, whether the soul, whether the soul's presence in a body makes it living. And, and this may go to the question of, uh, you know, whether the soul is immortal, which I think is something that is still debated. Um, I think there's a lot of people who think that it's not immortal and some who do. Um, and this may go into religious concepts as well. And I found this passage 105D to 107D to be particularly interesting where um, Socrates starts with the proposition that uh, what is it present in a body makes it living? The answer is a soul. And is that always so? The answer is of course. Whatever the soul occupies, it, 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 always, brings to life, it always brings life to it. It does. Is there or is there not an opposite to life? There is. What is it? Death. Socrates says, the soul, so the soul will never admit the opposite of that which it brings along as we agree from what has been said. Very well. What do we, what do we call that which does not admit death? Well, the deathless, he said. Now, the soul does not admit death? No. So the soul is deathless? It is. So here is an interesting argument. Um, but it's all based on the premise that the presence of the soul in the body makes it living. And I think here he's really 
he's really getting to the heart of the question of whether the soul is immortal. Because if the soul is what makes something living, and the form of the living is opposite to the form of the death, then the form of the living always exists, the form of the death always exists. But if the soul is what is is making the, the thing living, and the living is an eternal form, then the soul is eternal. I think that that's the way I'm reading this particular argument. And I'm wondering what we think about that. Is, is that connection that he's making between the soul and the living necessarily so? Or do we think that there's something else that makes a thing living? Jose? Well, my, <clears throat> my understanding is that for the Greeks, the soul, the definition of soul, for by definition, is the soul is what it makes an uh, inanimate object animate. So uh, I think from the Latin word anima, that is animation. So I think this is definition. What it makes uh, something living is a soul. So, and, uh, and they are, the Greeks, they have these things that even animals, plants, they have souls. It's different than humans, but it's, it's a soul as well. So I think this part, what is that present in the world, maybe living a soul? I think it's, this is definition for the Greeks. This is my understanding. And, and you raise a question of whether a soul just exists in humans or whether it can exist in other um, animals. But I think the, the concept of the, the Greeks, yeah. they, they, have, they have the animals as well, they have souls. Mm -hmm. At least Aristotle mentioned explicitly. Mm -hmm. But uh, here, this is a definition, I think, that the soul is the whatever mm -hmm. makes uh, an object, a living object. This is a soul. And I think that idea of the, the animation of the object, um, I think is, and that's the way I think of soul. Like if, if you don't like the word soul, then maybe you could think of it as the animating force. Yeah. Um, and, and so that that's, you know, maybe that is the definition of living, you know? And, and so if that's the case, and then do you believe that the, that there is always life? in the universe or does life did life start from nothing and will all life end at some point um because if if life is not eternal then the soul is not eternal and is that i mean that's i guess that's a big question of debate right this is a conclusion of him that uh, because yeah. of the definition of concepts the soul must be mm -hmm. eternal <laughs> mm -hmm. Must be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Moshe, your thoughts, and then JK and Steve. Um, all right. Um, I'm not quite. I don't think that it's fair to, um, to um, parse the term soul in, in terms of uh, the animating force uh, because. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, a, a soul is something that that can learn, uh, can change. Um, we even found out in this uh, particular dialogue that souls can disappear into that river, whatever the name was, if you were a particularly bad murdering person. Um, 
I dare say from a 21st century standpoint, um, I think that I think that plants and worms are both alive, but I don't think that either one of them have um, uh, a soul. And I'd be hard pressed to say uh, that they have an animating uh, force. And even if um, even if if um, um, yeah yeah I, I just want to make that distinction between a, a soul and an animating force because even Plato, although he wasn't uh, he he doesn't use it, but uh, Vrikolakas is the Greek word for a zombie, which is a, a harmful uh, mindless creature brain mindless creature that you know can go around and do you know do harm to people and even though uh he doesn't take on the question of of uh, zombieism uh in particular it was certainly something that as as a greek i mean every greek child would you know would, would learn the learn the word eventually uh so i mean that um um that's something that that uh, although he doesn't pick it up uh seems to to uh, contradict the idea that you know that that soul is is mere animism, you know something that uh, uh, you know that, that that is a living force. And it, it's important, I guess, to understand that the animating force. I mean, when I think about it, it's something that can certainly change. It's not like once the force is established, it's it doesn't just uh, go on as it always was. It, it's it's something that's always self adaptive, maybe. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I guess whatever word we attach to it, I guess he's, he's saying that it's what makes a thing living. Um, so, so then it is, I guess, a question of whether, uh, life is defined as, you know, human life or, uh, you know, ape life or, you know, worm life, you know, at, at what point is something not living or animated, uh, with the soul. So, uh, certainly, that's there's different concepts of that, um, and it's important to understand, I guess, where that distinction is made. Yes, I, what I am saying is that uh, maybe now is not or whatever, but for the Greeks, I, I think that that was the concept. That uh, this is the definition of soul. Um, now, probably, it's not to the first century we can or whatever, but uh, yeah. at least in Plato's time, this is yeah. there was a, the definition. Yeah. Okay, and Steve. Yeah, it seems like we're trying to, you know, parse the uh, definition of what the soul is, and and we're trying to be, um, we're trying to define the soul, you know, very anthropomorphically, you know, and uh, you know, uh, from our, from our human perspective. But um, but if you don't do that, and you think of it in terms of um, this kind of uh, you know soul or mind or consciousness or animating force as the the whole of existence right the whole of um the whole of uh you know um you know uh life and the cosmos then the animating force uh is very pervasive and that um you know not just individuals human beings and animals and plants and so forth can we think of our individual our human uh, existence separate from our environment, separate from nature, separate from the cosmos, right? If you can't, then 
the animating force is all pervasive and uh, precedes um, everything that exists. And that, uh, and I think um, if you agree, you know, if you agree with Plato and the, uh, that the soul mind precedes precedes us, then there is a kind of a, perhaps a kind of a panpsychism that uh, you know um, there is a consciousness, you know, uh, pervasive in the nature of things in themselves. You know, perhaps you know even a rock, you know, can be. Uh, can have a soul. It has definitely has energy, right? If you agree with Einstein's E equals M C square, right? It's it's all it's pure energy, right? So why couldn't uh, you know a rock also have a have this kind of animating force that preceded it and and is uh, in it has it this force inherent within it, right? So so there's a kind of a, I think there's a kind of a suggestive of uh, panpsychism. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, we go to the question of if, if there was not a pervasive, um, if there was not a pervasive soul or a pervasive animating force throughout the cosmos, where do individual souls and minds come from? Um, you know, do they just arise spontaneously? Or is there some sort of universal connection of these? And that's, you know, one of the questions I think I, I was asking in my introduction is, um, you know, what is the source of mind? And, you know, then that could be taken to what's the source of soul. And then, you know, it's a question of what is living, you know, is a rock living? So is Plato saying here in this first line that 105D, what is it that present in a body makes it living? Um, what does he mean by living? Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of maybe other questions here that need to be, that need to be raised. Um, Steve? So I see... Uh basic conflict between um there's two different arguments that are one is that the physical and the mental are separate and the other that um you know that uh, there is a uh panpsychic force which would be you know the physical thing so it would be we're we're, we're opposing dualism and non-dualism non-dualism would be that you know some form of energy, there was some force that animates living organisms and that came from, that was produced by the physical. So that, you know, if we're, if, if we're taking that argument, that would be a non-dualism that, that everything is, um, you know, that there is no difference between the two, um, you know, this, um, when we're looking at, uh, you know, we've been using Einstein's theory as an example, E equals MC square, isn't not only saying that uh, all matter is energy, but it's also saying all energy is matter. So that that's the conservation of energy principle back to, but so I just see as we're, 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 Looking at this, but we're we're still, you know, we 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 come to two different conclusions: one that mind and and the physical are separate, and one that phys physical causes the mind. Yeah, and it, and it goes back to you know what uh, Socrates was saying at the beginning of what we started talking about. You know, the the cause uh, he's saying is mind. You know, and so I guess that's the question that we need to come to grips with do you know do we agree with that or, or not um you know what comes first mind or the physical 
Uh, is the physical body created first and then the mind is put into it? Or did the mind happen first and then physical bodies come along and the mind occupies those bodies? Um, or did they evolve? So in sync, you know, it's like saying, you know, which came first? You know, what, what, you know, what if, what's the uh, principle that they developed together? You know, right. that it wasn't that a body developed first and then created a mind. There's... You know, it's, you know, it's like uh, the example before from taking the ladder and walking to the moon, you know, you're going up until you're going down. It's just a perspective, you know, that it's some, it's some, when did the eye develop? You know, at some point there was light sensitive, uh, you know, characteristics that were, were responding to light. But at what point do you start calling it an eye? So I think that's uh, a similar sort of thing. Yeah, and if they if they evolve together simultaneously, then is there no cause to either? Maybe that's another question. So, um, Moshe, I think we have to look at Plato uh, in Toto uh, in in order to understand what he's talking about here when he's talking about life and the soul. Uh, I I don't believe that he's talking about uh, life in general. I, I believe he's talking about human life. And because he's always talking about human beings and human actions and human ethics. And, uh, you know, Aristotle goes on to give us a, a great biology and, and talk about all these, these empirical things. But you don't find that in Plato. So I, I don't think Plato would be happy with the idea that, you know, that uh, the soul is the thing that you find in plants and worms, uh, you know, that, that, that brings them life. I don't think he's talking about that kind of life. I think he's talking about the kind of life that entails a spiritual life because he talks in dozens of other places about, uh, you know, in the Phaedrus, you know, one of my, you know, famous examples is, is, you know, how the, you know, the souls, they attain their vision by scratching and clawing at each other, going toward the forms because it is the forms that bring with them enlightenment. And it is also, as it says at 249, uh, in which God abides and in beholding, which he is what he is. So God himself becomes immortal and, and God because of his proximity to the forms. But it's all this, this living thing is all about human life. It's not about, you know, cellular machinations. Well, yeah, and certainly that's something that we can explore. I think it's, um, I'm not quite sure which side he's he's on, actually, whether it's just human life or whether it, it extends to other forms of life. So um, it's, it's a good question to raise. Um, JK and then Jose, and then we are, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Yeah, maybe the, um, the uh, slight, um, you know, um, um, you know, lack of what, um, of uh, insight into this, um, his uh, way of thinking, maybe, um, maybe a, a slight, um, you know, flaw in his, in Plato's thinking is that the, uh, that forms uh, the mind is somehow transcendent and uh, as opposed to being eminent. And I guess you have to, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> I guess read uh, someone like Spinoza to um, to kind of um, correct this way of thinking about um, about the notion of um, this idea of uh, of the soul and uh, and then the mind mm. as as being eminent rather than transcendent. 
And maybe that's why he didn't go so far as to think of a mind in terms of this um, pervasive, you know, pervasiveness in in the in existence itself, as opposed to uh, you know uh, the, uh, the the existence of becoming, uh, as opposed to uh, the uh, <coughs> opposed to the existence of um, somehow being. So there's a split there between in Plato between you know uh, becoming and 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 being. And, um, but, uh, to bring that, uh, you know, those two poles to, uh, into, um, into a, uh, coherent, more coherent understanding, I think Spinoza, uh, perhaps, you know, fleshes that out, um, <clears throat> much later after Descartes and continued, uh, with that kind of dualism. Um, but, uh, Spinoza really corrects that dualism for me. Interesting. So you're saying that the mind becomes rather than transcends. Right, right, right. And also uh, Bergson too. Bergson has really, really fleshes that out in his uh, in his creative evolution. And he deals with the evolutionary thinking in terms of uh, in terms of this notion of um, of the um, you know the two mechanical ways of seeing life as mechanical and as a, as a uh, as a vital, you know, vital uh, energy, vital force. Interesting. Well, that, that's something that we can definitely explore, I think, as we go forward in trying to understand the forms and this idea of the form of life itself, I think is is key. Um, so we'll go to Jose, and then I think we are pretty much out of time for today. So maybe, Jose, if you would take the last word. Yeah. I, no, just, just to, to respond to Moshe, let's uh, comment about the soul and the living. Um, Definitely, definitely, Aristotle. He thought that uh, that uh, that the soul is what is give uh, like a like a animation to whatever is life. So the plants, the animals, they have soul. Different soul, completely different than the the, the human that they have. Now Plato, you mentioned that Plato never mentioned animals. He mentioned, remember, in. Um, Sorry, I don't remember exactly where, but I remember when he was uh, saying one of the myths of uh, the soul, and he said that the soul, some souls that they are bad, they are going to donkeys or, or wolves or some certain animals. So I think he, he believed that the, he said that the, he doesn't he doesn't go a, a lot talking about that, but he mentioned like uh, having souls in animals, especially this passage that we saw recently. I don't remember it was in the perspective of Fado or I don't remember where exactly, but uh, he mentioned yeah, that some souls go to animals. Yeah, might have been well, I would qualify my remarks then by saying that Plato talks about creatures with higher degrees of sentience because we can see that animals have sentience. You know, dogs can be trained, donkeys can be trained, things like that. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't get a lily to walk from one end of the garden to the other. So, I mean, I, I'm willing to grant that, you know, partially what you're saying, but it's, it's to, to beings that have a higher degree of sentience. Yeah, but my point is that, well, okay, that I, I, don't, I don't want to, like, I don't think that it's relevant to argue too much about that. But uh, my point is what uh, at the beginning of the, this, uh, uh, the, the thing that James pointed that. Uh, that uh, he refers to a definition. It's not that uh, he's proposing something, saying that the, the soul is uh, what produces life. 
is for, for the Greeks, I think it's a definition rather than, than Plato's uh, proposal of, of uh, this is what they meant. Well, it's, it's been a, a great discussion and, and, you know, we didn't get to the question of the end of the Phaedo where he talks about this strange conception of the earth. You know, he says that we think that we live on the top of the earth. We actually live inside the earth. Um, and, you know, it, maybe we think about this going forward is why he puts these kind of devices into his dialogues. It's not the first time that he ends a dialogue and what seems to be a bit of a strange way, but, um, you know, I, again, I guess this, you know, as he's about to go off to his own death, maybe he's trying to give us some idea of what lies beyond uh, the living. Uh, and I just, you know, we'll, we'll point out this particular phrase here, or particular sentence here that uh, is near the end of 107D. It says, if death, if death were to es were es escape from everything, it would be a great boon to the wicked to get rid of the body and of their wickedness together with their soul. So uh, here he's saying that, uh, you know, the, there is a price to pay for what you do in one life, and it's paid in the next life. Uh, and he's saying that death does not wash us of, of all of the evils that we might have committed um, during our life, that, uh, that it goes on to the next life. And it, at the end of the Fidu, he actually says at one point, you know, souls that have committed very wicked acts uh, actually have to ask for forgiveness of their victims in the next, uh, in, in the, the, the beyond the life phase. Uh, and I thought that was a particularly interesting thing. So again, you know, whether the soul is immortal or not, but uh, it's one of his other concepts here that uh, the, the soul being immortal would not be excused from things that it did in one life. So I just wanted to call that into attention because we didn't really get to that end part of of the Fido. Um, so again, just wanted to thank everybody for a great discussion today. We such a, touched on so many important things. And, you know, as always, I think with, with Plato, we can't necessarily reach absolute conclusions on things, but I think we've had a good discussion on the idea of the forms and we can go on to consider that. Um, I had thought last time that uh, I wanted to do Parmenides next, but I think it actually makes sense to do the sophist next. Um, and that, I think, will allow us to focus a little bit more on the forms um, and, and continue this discussion. So I think if we, if we're okay with doing the sophist next, I would propose going to 235D in the sophist from the beginning to 235D. And I think that might help us, you know, continue this discussion of the forms and really understand what he's trying to say with the forms before we get into Parmenides. So I think we might and you know, conclude this season with Parmenides, but do the sophist first. So with that being said, uh, again, thanks to all. And uh, so I'll end the recording, yes, but- one, uh, one little word, uh, yes, half a minute. Uh, I, I think this uh, Phaedo is uh, like a tribute to, to Socrates. I, mm -hmm. I, this is the second time that I read this dialogue. And at the end, at the end, I was moved by-, by Wait. The, yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful ending. Absolutely. It's a beautiful ending. It's a, it's a, yeah. and, a, and a, as he said at the beginning, that he was he was mixing feelings of sad or, or happy. Mm -hmm. Sad because we he, they lost a friend and, and a philosopher, but happy for him because this is what he wanted. Absolutely. And, and Socrates is quite happy to, to go on to his fate. And uh, he says, um, I'm looking for it here, that, 
when when somebody is is uh, I'm just like, oh yeah, here it is. It's at one fourteen C. He says, "Those who have purified themselves sufficiently by philosophy live in the future altogether without a body." So I think maybe he's kind of looking forward to that to that phase and not having to deal with a body. Um, so again, yeah, it, it's a beautiful dialogue, and um, I think there's so many important things that we have touched on, and, and so many other things that we can follow up on particularly from the comments made today. So I think that's that's great. So we'll look forward to going to the SOFIS next time. And um, thank you again for all participating. So I'll end the recording now, but those who want to stay online uh, for just a casual unrecorded discussion, uh, more than welcome to do so. So thank you all again for a great discussion and looking forward to seeing you in two weeks. Bye.